Now, as we're diving into God's word this morning, we're picking up basically where we left off last week here in the book of Acts. So go ahead and open your Bible to Acts chapter four. By the way, if you are tempted to use your Bible on your smartphone, that'll be fine today, but know that we're gonna bounce around a little bit. So if you've got one there with you, um, you might wanna open it up. And if not, you might look on with a neighbor or things like that, just because we will be kind of bouncing from, place, from passage to passage a little bit as we review. So just know that that's the, the case. But as you're turning over there, let me ask you, what does it take to make something exceptional, right? When you think of the word exceptional, uh, you might talk about it from the idea of this was an exceptionally good meal, or we got exceptionally good service, or this was an exceptionally well-made something, right? The idea is that it has to stand out. It's got to be better than other things in that category to be better made or to work better, or they have to be able to perform at a a higher level than others. Um, We had a a gift card to a a chain steakhouse that we used the other night, and um, my wife's steak I would not describe as exceptional. Um, She got a a six-ounce sirloin, which we know is not a generous cut of meat to begin with, but it was about the size of, you know, a piece of flank steak that you'd get in a uh, fajita, you know? That That was not exactly exceptional. That was not really what we were looking for with that meal. However, when you've, you've ever had those exceptional meals where it seems like you know, the, the server just went above and beyond and everything was right on point, everything was hot and prepared just the way you liked it, and, and everything just seemed to click well. Well, that's what makes things exceptional. And as we talked about two weeks ago when we looked at Luke's summary of the early church, we saw that exceptional was a word that you could use to describe the early church. They were seeing incredible things happen. God was doing miracles through the apostles. They had this favor with the people. There was this incredible unity. It really was an exceptional time. One of the things that we were introduced in that section, though, was that one of the things that made the church exceptional in those days was the way that they shared everything in common. In fact, that's what I'd like us to focus on this morning, is that in some ways, for us to be an exceptional church, for us to see God at work, not necessarily in the same way the early church did, but doing things that only God can do, then you and I must also be exceptionally common, which is good because there's not a whole lot exceptional about me. So as we think about this, the idea of being exceptionally common looking here at Acts chapter 4. So we're going to dive in at chapter 4, verse 32. Now, before we do, let me remind you the context. They had healed this man in the temple. The Peter and John had been thrown in prison because of that. They had gone and defended themselves before the Jewish leaders and authorities. They had been released, and then they had gone to the church, and they had prayed. When they went to the, the church and they were praying together, then it says in verse 31, When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God boldly. So they had prayed that God would give them boldness, and then they saw God answer that prayer, and they were able to continue to be bold where they were, okay? Now, Luke is getting ready to pull aside from the action and give us a second summary that he does occasionally through the book of Acts. Verse 32, now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind. And no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. That everything in common is our idea for the day. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. For there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as any had need. 
We saw similar language two weeks ago when we looked at Acts chapter 2, but here he goes into a little bit more detail about what it looked like for the church to hold all things in common. Here's, if I were to, to try to put a, a summary statement to it and try to pull it all together, here's what I would, I would say, and we're going to break this out a point at a time as we go through, okay? Common concern leads to common sacrifice, which is based on common teaching and results in common grace, okay? Common concern leads to common sacrifice, which is based on common teaching, which results in common grace. Now, I'm sure that that's stuck and you're good. You could go home from now. But let's take some time and unpack each of those phrases a little bit, okay? The first thing that we see is that the church was marked by a common concern. Go back to verse 32. Now, the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind. This doesn't mean that they always agreed on everything. There's an idea when we start talking about unity that unity means uniformity. In other words, that every thought I think has to line up with what you think. We have to dress the same. We have to talk the same. We have to basically become the same person. You know, it's kind of like if you've been around a couple that's been married for a whole lot of years, and you notice they even start kind of looking like each other. They talk like each other. They reflect that, that commonality, right? Well, here's what we're seeing. We're seeing that in the early days of the church, they lived out what Paul would spell out more explicitly in Philippians chapter 2. By the way, this we could spend weeks in Philippians chapter 2 just by itself. Um, so, in fact, actually, we have some ladies who I think are spending weeks in Philippians chapter 2 in a precept study that they're doing on Thursdays. But here's where it says, Philippians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3 say this. Paul says, Make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Just in case there's any question about that, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility considers others as more important than yourselves. Now, go back, Alex, if you can, go back a verse there to that first one. Paul says that the goal for us as a church is that we would, thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Well, what is that one purpose? The one purpose is the one we've already seen that the the church in Acts is going after. And that is exalting Jesus as Lord over every aspect of creation, both their lives individually, the way that they treated each other as believers, and the way that they engaged with those who had not yet come to Christ. The, The way that they lived, that purpose of honoring Jesus in every sector of their life was what unified the early church on this one purpose that they had. They were united in spirit, intent on one purpose. That then led them to be able to do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. See, this humility of thinking of others and that concern comes out of the common purpose. I was listening to somebody talk the other day about some issues that were going on in their family. This isn't somebody who's a part of our church. And they said that they had had some differences of opinion about politics and about COVID and about things like that that had separated members of their family. And they weren't really talking to each other and couldn't really get along with each other. And then one of the members of the family had a health crisis. And all of a sudden, they were able to lay all that aside. And they were able to to finally kind of come back together to spend a whole day together. They could talk with each other because there was a purpose that caused them to lay all of that aside. And that purpose was taking care of this family member. All of that stuff kind of became secondary and and non-essential once they had that purpose in mind. 
One of the things that you and I need to be aware of as we live in a time that is more divided than most of us have ever realized, although this is not the first time that the world's been divided over different issues. This is just part of the cycle of how human life seems to go. However, it would be very easy for us as a church to become divided along political lines, to be divided along whether we should wear masks or not, or whether we should get the vaccine or not, or all of these different things. It, this, then, you know, you take it out from the context of the society to the division that can come along preferences. I've told you before about the, the church that I knew of that voted uh, that a two-and-a-half-hour business meeting fight over what color to paint the upper half of the walls in their sanctuary, Okay. That doesn't matter. There are people around us who need to know Jesus. Part of the common concern we develop for each other comes when we're willing to put the main thing as the main thing. That is exalting Jesus and Savior and Lord. Now, we're not always going to agree on exactly how that should go. We're not always going to come down in the same place. But if you and I can stay intent on that one purpose of exalting Christ in every area of our life, like we say as a church that our goal is that we would love God and others in our family, our church, our community, and world. If we stay focused on that, although we may disagree on the particulars, it creates a common concern among us where we would be like we could say we're in one heart and one mind. God gives us a great concern for those who are serving Christ alongside of us. I, I can't tell you this truth, I can't stress it enough. Because see, here's the thing. Unity within the church was a huge focus of Jesus's teaching. Now, on Wednesday nights, we've been going through John chapters 13 through 17 with our Wednesday night prayer meeting. I would encourage you, if you've got questions about how important unity is, read through those chapters. Why? Because this was the last time Jesus would be teaching his disciples before he went to the cross. Over and over and over throughout that passage, he brings up our love for one another, our unity with one another, our concern for one another. In fact, here's an example. In John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, he says, I give you a new command, love one another. What's the standard for that? Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. The mark that sets us apart as Christians is that we love people the way that Jesus loved us. How did Jesus love us? Well, John 3.16, I love the way that the CSB translates it because it kind of jars it a little bit in my mind. They say, God loved the world in this way. You know, if you memorize it in the King James, you remember, for God so loved the world. For us, that can become so quick to say that we miss what that so means. The CSB translates it and says, God loved the world in this way, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish, but have eternal life. The way that God loved you was sending Jesus to die on the cross in your place to give you his life in place of your sin. That's how God loved you. And Jesus said, those who are going to be my disciples are going to love each other the same way. That's the mark that sets us apart. As we stay intent on one purpose, Jesus said that the defining characteristic that would set us apart as his followers was our love for one another. Now, we see the early church was exceptional at this here in Acts chapter 4, and we see that one heart, one mind. In fact, Jesus didn't stop there, by the way. He included this unity in his prayer at the end of his conversations with the disciples last night. This was the last time that we know that Jesus prayed out loud with his disciples. 
John chapter 17, he says this, I've given them, talking about the disciples, the glory you've given me, so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you, talking to the Father, you are in me so that they may be made completely one, that the world may know that you've sent me and have loved them as you've loved me. Now, we don't have time to get into all the nuances of the Trinitarian relationship between Jesus and the Father and and how all of that worked out. But Jesus said the way he was leading, the way he'd been teaching, the way he had demonstrated God's glory to them was so that we would be as unified with each other and with him as he is with the Father. Are we there? I wish that we could say as a church that we've arrived at this place. But you know, one of the things that the pandemic has done is isolate us. But, but as individuals, we're just not out as much. We're not as, as open as we have been. We've not been around each other as much. And I understand and I want to be sensitive to what's wise there. At the same time, we need to make sure that we have not allowed that isolation to bring disunity. Because it's easy during that time for us to get so focused inward that we've lost sight of the purpose for which God called us and saved us to be able to love him and to love others in such a way that they would come to know Jesus as Savior and Lord. So how are we doing on our common concern? If we're going to be an exceptional church, then we have to have a common concern where we love each other this way, intent on one purpose. It's through that unity that we display who God is. Now, does that mean that you'll be best friends with every person in your church family? Probably not, okay? You, that, that's not what we're saying here. However, there should be a concern in your heart for those who go to church with you. There ought to be some level at which you care about other believers. If you're content to be isolated and alone, then you need to ask God to work in your heart to give you a concern for those around you. Again, you look around and a lot of folks are still staying out because of health concerns. Call them. If you don't have their number, call me or call Denise because she's got access to the directory too. So we can get you their number. We can get you in touch with them. We would love for you to be able to follow up with whoever you're worried about. Well, isn't that your job? You're the preacher. That's what we pay you for. Part of my job is to make sure that I, I am doing what I can to care for the sheep. I understand that. But last I checked, there's a, over 100 of you and one of me. I can't adequately care for everybody. And by the way, the the apostles weren't the only ones doing this. It said, everybody, every one of the 3,000 who got saved, the 5,000 men that we saw last time that were now part of the church, they were all demonstrating that care and concern for each other, not just the apostles, okay? So you get it, all right? So you say you're supposed to be united around the same purpose of exalting Christ. That's going to lead you to care about the other people in his church family. So you might be sitting there saying, so sure I care. How could somebody tell? How can someone outside of you tell that you care about other people that God's put in your path? The other people that you worship with? The other people you know? See, this common concern is going to lead to the next thing that we see, which is common sacrifice. Common sacrifice. Go back again to Acts. It says they were of one heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but that instead they held everything in common. 
This doesn't mean that it's, like we've said before, it doesn't mean that it's a communal ownership where there's no personal property, things like that, because we see that more clearly. You jump down to verse 34. For there was not a needy person among them because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. So they had individual property, but they were willing to sacrifice whatever it took to be able to show that common concern for those that they were with. To where they could say, verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. I mean, can you imagine if we lived in such a way as a church that there was not a single person in our church family and not because we're too uppity to allow those kind of people in, but where we loved so well that if somebody came today that had economic struggles, that we as a church would rally around them to the point to lift them out of poverty. Man, that's really big, isn't it? That's really hard. When you come to Christ, if you're genuinely concerned about others, you must allow God to change the way you think about everything that you have. See, as you look back, you know, we have this American dream of me building my little kingdom and my house and a white picket fence and my cars and my, my, my. Settle this truth today if you've never done this before. Absolutely nothing you own belongs to you. Okay? Absolutely nothing you own belongs to you. Now, by the way, as we're talking about this idea of giving, we sang in our our song earlier, you're not a God dependent on any mortal man. You don't need anything we can give. We give out of response to his generosity because everything that we own, we think, actually belongs to God. Now, that's true of other things besides just our money, we, we often talk about it in three categories of our time, our talents, and our treasures, right? So God is ultimately the one who's given us time. I mean, right now, if God wanted to, I could die of a heart attack right here. God could cause my heart to stop beating if that was what God desired to do. So I'm living on borrowed time. So are you. God's the one who's sustaining your life. So ultimately, your time is his. If you're having a talent or an ability to do something, Who created you with that? Well, Sean, I practiced really hard. I took these classes. I developed these skills. Who gave you the mind to do that? Who made your body work the way that it did so you could? Who kept you from breaking your back so you couldn't work that job anymore? God. So all of your talents, all of your abilities are his. But then as we see here, all of our possessions are his. The term we like to use in the church is stewardship. That means I'm holding on to these things until God asks for them back. That's what it means for me to steward the resources that God's given me. I, I'm, they're not mine. They're entrusted to me to take care of until God asks for them again. So that's how the early church looked at their stuff. They said, you know what? I've got this property and here's this need. And so I, I said, that's God's property. So I'm gonna sell this to help meet that need for one of God's people. Are we willing to do the same? See, this is something that's clearly played out in, in 2 Corinthians chapter eight. If you look in 2 Corinthians chapter eight, verse 13, it says this. Um, they're talking about taking up a collection for those who were poor. And they're doing it from various different churches. He said, it's not that there should be relief for others and hardship for you, but it is a question of equality. At the present time, your surplus is available for their need, 
so that their abundance may in turn meet your need in order that they may be equality. As it is written, the person who had, had much did not have too much, and the person who had little did not have too little. Now, some of the wording of that's a little bit complicated. So here's how one ministry that I'm familiar with summarizes the, the teaching of that passage. I give today out of my abundance or my supply to meet the needs of others, believing that tomorrow, if I have a need, God will use the abundance of others to meet my need. Okay? In fact, actually, I think, Alex, that may be a quote we can put up on screen. I give today out of my abundance. See, maybe the next one. There you go. All right. I give today out of my abundance or supply to meet the needs of others, believing that tomorrow, if I have a need, God will use the abundance of others to meet my need. Okay? So how does this work out? Let's kind of give a, a practical example. If we as the early church live like this, this is how it could, could come up. Let's say that uh, there's somebody in the church who comes down with a serious medical need and needs a procedure that insurance will not cover. You guys are well aware that if you don't have insurance, stuff is insanely expensive. So we as a church, you know, we've, we've done our due diligence. This is not, you know, some kind of fake thing. There's no fraud here. This is a genuine need. So we start praying about, God, how would you desire to use us to help meet that need? Now, let's say I've got a boat. Maybe God convicts me that I need to sell my boat to be able to give. Now, I don't have a boat. I have other things that God could call us to sell. I have other things that God could call us to give. But let's say that that's what happens. So, so now imagine the conversation goes like this. That person with the medical need is at work, and they're saying, yeah, I'm actually going to be out for the next two weeks because uh, I'm having that procedure done. One of their coworkers says, well, I, I thought you said that that thing was way too expensive and there was no way you could afford it. Yeah, I, I couldn't. There was no way I could have paid for that. But, you know, the, the church that I'm a part of, they, they love Jesus and they love me and, and they came together and, and they actually gave me the money that I needed to be able to get the surgery. And, I, you know, I actually heard that one guy even sold his boat so that I could have the surgery. Oh, man, was, was that guy a good friend of yours? <laughs> actually, no. I mean, we, we really don't know each other, but we, we go to church together and, and God just moved on his heart and, and that's what he did. Because see. We, we serve a God who gave us his son. So that leads us to be generous. And, and so, I mean, do, do you know Jesus that way? I mean, have you, ever, have you ever realized that that's what God did for you? So that man can then share the gospel based off of the generosity that's been shown. Flip it around. Hey, man, when are we going back to the lake? Ah, actually, I got rid of my boat. Oh, okay. maintenance costs get too much. I mean, I hear you know, boats are a sinking cost, man, because if you don't put a lot of money into them, they just sink. <laughs> no, it actually wasn't the maintenance costs. Um, at, there was a guy at church that had a procedure coming up, needed some, so I just felt like I was supposed to, to sell the boat. Was he like a good friend of yours? <laughs> actually, no. I mean, we've, we've been in some classes together and stuff, but I, I didn't really know him all that well. But um, you see, that wasn't my boat anyway. That was God's boat. God loved me so much that he'd give me his son. So if he calls me to sell that boat so I can give that to somebody else who needs it. And do you know Jesus that way? See, that's what Jesus did for you. He died for you so that you could have life. What an incredible testimony that would be. So Sean, well, that seems kind of extreme. They sold houses and lands. Okay? Okay. You didn't own a whole lot of property back then. These weren't real estate tycoons who just bought stuff up and sold it off. 
These were people who gave at great cost, great sacrifice. I've known people who God has moved in their heart in big ways like this. We've been blessed to be the recipients of it sometimes. Told you before, there were times in seminary where stuff was tight and I didn't know how I was going to pay for things. And there'd be a, a list in our daily newsletter we got at the school that said, you know, these six or eight students are supposed to stop by the financial aid office after chapel's over. And I'd go by the financial aid office and they'd say, this is a gift that came from one of our donors and they wanted us to direct it to some of the students that we knew needed something. And so here's $500. I've told you before about the one that somebody gave that was completely anonymous that paid for my next semester's school so that I could buy Christmas presents that led me to go out on a date with a young lady to go buy these Christmas presents that now almost, see, 16 years later, over 16 years later, she's now my wife. Because somebody said, what I have is not my own. And I know that there's a young preacher boy who needs it. I think I know who that was. And I think they're... The husband's in heaven. If it's who I think it is. Husband's in heaven and the wife's memory is gone. I've known church secretaries that get phone calls from people that say, hey, I don't know if anybody needs it, but God just laid on my heart that there's probably somebody that needs $1,000 today and so I'd bring a check by if, if y'all have somebody that could use it right after they've gotten off the phone with somebody who said, our water heater just went out. We have no idea how we're gonna pay to have it replaced. I'm not making this stuff up. What a testimony to the lost world around us when we're willing to sacrifice to meet needs. Guys, what would this look like for us as a church? What would it, what would it do for us? We know, like it says in Matthew chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, we know that we're not supposed to let the right hand know what the left hand's doing. By the way, the reason I know about the stories where they call the church secretary is because the church secretary is my mom, okay? She's the church secretary over at Grace Life. Um, and there are people over there who have, have that gift of giving that God's done that. My first car was, uh, was one that somebody sold my dad for a dollar just so that he could tell his wife that he sold the car to us, Okay? What if that was just the run-of-the-mill way that church was so that we could say that we've done everything we can so that nobody in our church family or connected to our church family is living in poverty because we've been so gracious to sacrifice because of what God has sacrificed for us? What would that look like? says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing so that your giving may be in secret. We don't give so that others will see, but there will be times when others see what we've given. There's going to be times when we have the opportunity to give God glory for the way that he's worked and the way that he's moved. That common concern leads to a common sacrifice. Maybe your job this afternoon is to sit down and go through a list of everything you own. I don't care if you're old or if you're young, if you have three things in your closet or a thousand things in your closet, maybe you just need to sit down today and write out everything you own and deed all of that back to God. This house is yours. These cars are yours. These tools are yours. These guns are yours. These clothes are yours. These clubs are yours. Whatever it is. These games are yours. 
It's all his. So God, what do you want me to do with it? Okay? Common concern leads to common sacrifice. Well, we've already hinted at this reality, but what is it that underlies this entire passage? And that is that it was based on a common teaching. Based on a common teaching. Common concern leads to common sacrifice, which is based on common teaching. Look at verse 33. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on them. The apostles had continued in that same spirit that they ended last week with. Remember, we said there at verse 31, when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak the word of God boldly. And then we saw down here that the what underlying message behind everything that was going on was the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why week after week after week, sometimes I feel like I'm just preaching the same message over and over again because we focus so highly on the gospel because of what Jesus has done by dying on the cross and rising from the dead. That changes everything for us. That's the common teaching that led them to have that. Why is that so important? Well, as we've talked about it, if you go back to the incredibly great lengths that God went through to save you, then you'll be motivated to go to any length to help someone else. That's what God reminds us of in 1 John. 1 John chapter 4, he says this, Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we must also love one another. See, as they saw Jesus, remember, these guys were the ones who walked with Jesus while he was on earth. They were the ones who saw the resurrected Christ. John, the guy who just wrote that, was one of the ones who saw Jesus hanging on the cross, dying for our sins. So they had seen it firsthand, what God had done. And that led them to never get over it. They focused so heavily on Christ's death burial, resurrection, and subsequent lordship. In other words, he's in charge over all of creation. That was the core of what they taught, what they believed, and what they held on to because that motivated them to have that common concern that led to a common sacrifice that changed the world. It was based on that common teaching. By the way, as we've talked around the gospel this morning, let me remind you that this is a message for you. If you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior and Lord, I hope you've heard that there's a God in heaven who loves you, who died in your place and was raised from the dead so that you could walk with him, have new life, and surrender to him as Lord. And you can do that today. That's the common teaching we base our lives off of. And all of this commonality, this exceptionally common way that they lived with common concern, common sacrifice, common teaching, then led them to also be filled with common grace, common grace. Now, if you are here and you're a theologically minded person and you're listening to this, you may say, well, I've heard of that phrase, common grace. I'm not using this in the technical term. Um, Usually common grace is the term that theologians use to refer to the grace that God gives to everyone regardless of whether or not they follow Jesus. In other words, 
coffee is a common grace, okay? The the fact that coffee tastes delicious, you don't have to be saved to enjoy coffee. Coffee is a common grace. Life, sunshine, breath, rain, food, these are all things that are common graces that God gives, okay? So we're not using it in that theological sense today. We're not using it in the technical sense. I'm using that to, to point you to what we see there again in verse 33, that great grace was on all of them. Luke tells us that the early church all experienced the abundant grace of God because of their sacrificial love for each other. By the way, what's it mean to be filled with grace? Well, that's the same word that was translated favor back in Acts chapter 2, verse 47, when we said that they enjoyed the favor with all of the people. So it actually may have some to, to carry that same idea over here, that they still have favor with a whole lot of the people, that they're enjoying grace, they're enjoying favor with the folks. But it's, it's kind of more likely to think about the idea of grace or favor like the way that Jesus is described in Luke's gospel. Remember, Luke wrote Acts as well, so he uses it kind of the same way both places. Luke chapter 2, verse 52, talking about Jesus growing up. It's that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with people. So in a similar way, the early church displayed the grace of God through their tough sacrifices that they made on behalf of others. God manifested his grace to them as he continued to teach them about himself show himself strong on their behalf. He gave them the ability to trust him to provide as they received the blessing of giving as well as receiving a generous gift to meet their need. They enjoyed the favor of God as he worked in their midst to save people and encourage people and expand his kingdom. They enjoyed God's grace as he enabled them to put their own preferences aside, to be intent on his purpose, to see him exalted as they had all things in common. I don't know about you guys, but I... I want to live in such a way that we have the favor of God on our church. Now, by the way, some folks use that phrase nowadays to make it sound like if you have the favor of God, you're never going to have hard days. You're always going to have lots of money. You're always going to be healthy. You're always, that's not what the favor of God is. The favor of God, first and foremost, is that we can have a relationship with him through Jesus as our Savior and Lord. However, there is also that unique blessing of knowing that no matter what I run into today, God is walking with me, or more importantly, I'm walking with him. That that no matter what I run into, no matter what happens, I know that God's got this. I know that Philippians says, he who began a good work in me will be faithful to bring it to completion. So I I know that that he's working, he's doing things. That, That common grace of knowing and understanding that we are, as best we know, as a family, as a church family, we are honoring God. So we know that he's with us, even if the whole world goes crazy around us. I want to be exceptionally common. How about you? I want you to bow your heads with me and close your eyes for just a minute. As you're there, my question for you is, is there one of these things that we've talked about, and you may need to peek again just to look at it, that stands out that's a problem for you? Maybe you've gotten frustrated with somebody else in the church and you've realized that you've lost that common concern. And you need to ask God to forgive you, to strengthen you and draw you back to himself in that. Maybe you've never had that. Maybe you've been happy to live this Christian life on your own and you've never really developed that concern for other people. Would you ask God to help us as a church 
you as an individual and us together as a church to have that common concern that our hearts would be so laser focused on his purpose that we wouldn't let anything distract or divide us? Then would you ask God to take everything that you have and everything that you are and all of your time and allow you to lay that at his feet and say, God, whatever you want to do with this, it's yours. Would you ask God to help us as a church be aware of needs that are going on around us that we can help with, where we can be involved and invested so that it would be true of us as it is of the other early church that there's not a single poor person among us, not a single person in need. Maybe for you, you've lost sight again of the gospel and the good news of what Jesus has done for you. Maybe you've forgotten that that's a message that he's given to all of the world. So you need to ask him to center your heart around the gospel again. Would you ask for God to give our church his grace, his favor, so that his name would be exalted, so that Jesus would be made famous by the way that we live, by the way that we treat people, by the way that we treat each other. That as we're coming through this season of the pandemic where we've been so isolated that God would Give us hot hearts for him and for each other so that nothing would divide his church. Because it's not our church, it's his. It's not our kingdom, it's his. He's in charge. Take a moment there and do business with God. If you need to talk to me, I'll be here. If not, just do business there where you're seated. And then I'll close this in just a minute.